This morning we are continuing in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 through 24. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Lord God, you are here. Will you help us to see you? Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Particularly as we have been in Genesis 3 over the past, I think, three weeks, what we have been seeing is not how did the world come to be, but how did the world as we experience it come to be. That is to say that we live in kind of a, a messy world, that there are good things and bad things happening every day. That we have these strange experiences that it's possible to be, uh, to be happy and sad at the same time, and we don't even know what's going on in our hearts or in our bodies. Uh, that, that we live in this kind of in-between world where we are touched both by the hope and the faith and love of God, and we have doubts, and we have fears, and we know that there is evil going on in the world. How does all of this come together? Well, it comes together because sin is in the world. And we bring more sin into the world. And what we have seen as we were reading this is, is that the human beings have, have been a part of this for a very long time. Where I want to start is to, to look back and to look at that a job that Adam had before sin came into the world. And this job was that God, that he named a bunch of animals. And so if you remember, God, uh, because this book is about God and about people, it tells a, a very human-centric story about humanity. It doesn't talk about other planets, doesn't talk about other uh, universes, whatever, all these big questions that we might have. It talks about a particular people and a particular planet and, and humankind. That's who it talks about. And as it's talking about this, um, that we have all this order and, and what we saw is God slowly kind of creating this, this nest for human beings to be able to, to flourish within. And, and that certainly is the earth itself and the rest of creation that God speaks into being. But it's, it's Eden in particular that God creates this abundant garden. He places Adam in the midst of it. He makes Adam from the ground and he places Adam in the midst of it. But he sees that although God has said it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good on this particular day, he says it is not good. Adam needs help. And when God says help, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean help like someone underneath him. God needs an assistant. What it means is help in the way that the Psalms speak of God. An ever-present help in times of trouble. He needs that kind of help. Someone that will be with him and alongside him. And that is woman who is taken from his side. 
And the reason that man and woman can become one flesh is because they came from one flesh. They have this close connection, this close. There could not be a closer connection that is possible than between these two. And when Adam sees her, he says, this is woman. In Hebrew, as well as English, we can see that man and woman are even connected. The words for woman contain the word for man in both languages, woman, man, that they are connected in this way. But, but woman at this point is, is kind of a, uh, a species kind of, kind of thing. Even though women are not their own species, it'd be like, you know, camel and whale. And I'm not sure what a whale is doing in a garden, but... Anyway, great example I just came up with. Camel, whale, uh, goldfish, woman, uh, all, all this. But we don't know much about her in particular. And in fact, it's not until after, after everything awful, the great catastrophe happens, uh, that, that she gets a name for herself, and we find it in this scripture. And so as it comes after the fall, it, it makes us wonder, is, is it somehow tied to it? And in the midst of this, we begin to see that there is, there is darkness and light in everything that will be to come. There's darkness and light in everything that will be to come. So in verse 20, we see the darkness and light. The man names his wife Eve because she is the mother of all living. And there's light here because Eve sounds like a word for life. And in fact, there's an ancient translation of the Greek, of the Old Testament in the Greek. It's even older than when Jesus was walking around. And this word, Eve, it's not just close to the Greek word for, for Eve. It is the Greek word for Eve, which is Zoe. Zoe is the word for life. Zoe's other name is Eve, of course. So everybody knows. A whole project about your, what your name means. Yeah. Yeah. So he names her, her this word that sounds like life. She's called the mother of all living. And yet at the same time, there's this light and this darkness because Eve also sounds like a Hebrew word for serpent. How, do, how does this kind of go together? There's always kind of this, this discordant thing going, this discordant note added, or there's this kind of bitter aftertaste even to things that taste sweet at first. And even when we're thinking about why does Adam name her after the fall, there can be different reasons for this. Is this Adam living into this broken relationship with his wife in which uh, it's kind of the control? Why does he get to name her? Is he kind of taking this controlling role or is it just perfectly great and, and he loves her and he is reminded when he sees her that though we are leaving from where God first placed us, every time I see you, I will remember God's life is still with us. God's life is still with us. And it's, it's these ambiguities that it can be this both and the light and the darkness coming together. In the next verse, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and his wife and God clothed them. And again, in one instance, this is a very great thing that God is doing. God is taking care of them. God is clothing them uh, in, order to, in order to show that I'm, I'm still with you. I'm still taking care of you. In a couple of verses, they will be out of the garden, but God has not abandoned them. God is clothing them. And yet, when you think about animal skins, animal skins come from death. God can create them out of whatever God wants them to. God didn't have to kill an animal to make clothes uh, to do this, but these are made of animal skins. So when they put them on, they were putting on mortality. Every time you put on your clothes in the morning, you're reminded 
of mortality, that death is part of life now. That death has entered the world. So we have this, this, this sweet and this sour, this dark and this light coming in in every action. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. And so Adam is, is cast out from the garden. He came from dust. That's why his name is Adam. Adam means earth. But now he goes and works the earth. And every time he works the earth, he knows this is where I'm going back to. And so even his name, Eve's name might have a couple meanings. His own name has a couple meanings. Before, in the garden, it meant, I am dust, but God has held me together. What a wonderful thing God has done. And now his, his name means, I am alive now, but I will return to the dust. But there's this, this darkness and light once again. And God drives out the people, and of course this seems like all it can be is darkness. They're, they're blocked from the tree of life. They will not have eternal life. They will not get a chance to eat from this other tree in the garden that apparently they had not eaten of. We, didn't, we don't know much about the garden, but apparently there were two trees with, with particular names. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other was the tree of life. But if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then somehow you gain some sort of knowledge that's similar, if not the same, as the knowledge God has. And if you eat from the tree of life, then you receive an eternal life which is similar, if not the same, as what God has, God's eternal life. In the early church, they were better at, at something that, that we can grow better at. They, they teach us this thing, and this, this teaching is that any time you're looking at Scripture, that you look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through all the actions of his life, through the character as we see it, through his words, put on these gl Jesus glasses every time we look at the Scriptures. And so they would do this as they looked at the Old Testament. And so uh, we see this even in the New Testament. John, the gospel writer, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's because he put on his Jesus glasses when he read Genesis chapter 1. And he saw that Jesus is here. And he would turn the page, and he would see Jesus here, and Jesus there, and Jesus all throughout the Scriptures. Martin Luther eventually would say that, that Scripture is the swaddling clothes of Christ. They're like, this is the manger, and when we come here, we can find Jesus. And what that means in particular, and why that's particularly helpful, is sometimes when we see God, God is doing some things that we don't understand, and we probably won't understand in this life. God has a, a, a purpose and a plan that sometimes God does things that, that don't make sense to us. But there are other things that God does that, that if we didn't know Jesus, we might misunderstand God. What I mean by that is, is that what Christians believe about Jesus is that he is the fullest revelation of God. The New Testament calls him the image of the invisible God. God is invisible God, uh, but Jesus is here, and we can see him, and when we look to Jesus, we see God. Jesus says this. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And when we take that and we look to the scriptures, 
one way of looking to the scriptures is God is really mad here and cast the people out of the out of good riddance. I'm going to go back in the garden. I'm going to do whatever I do. You guys are on your own. But the Christian way to look at this would be to say, does that description fit in with the God of Jesus Christ? And the answer is it doesn't. Jesus, the scriptures make clear, has come because God is having mercy on the world. Once again, from the Gospel of John, he came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. And so again, what is God up to here? Why does he cast them out? From the earliest church, they were such close readers of Scripture. Sometimes it would be kind of wacky questions that, that we don't think to answer, or at least I don't. Like, why is Jesus the Lamb of God? Why is he called the Lamb of God? There's the sacrificial system, there is a lamb offering, but why is Jesus the lamb, not the dove of God, or the sheep of God, or the goat of God, or the bull of God, or, or whatever else? And then they kind of have these, this trying to understand this and look at it closely, so that every word of Scripture really means something to them. And they look at the details, and they try to figure out what's going on, and they ask these questions, even when they know they won't come to uh, an answer in the sense of, I know this definitively, and when I get to heaven, it's like a math problem, everything, I've got it all figured out. Instead, they were willing to bring their imaginations to bear. And so they would say, given what we know of God and Jesus Christ, what is going on with this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did God just plant a poisonous plant in the middle of the garden? And they say, no. So what's it about? And they, and they would start to wonder, and, and we can wonder with them, is it possible that the problem was not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, let alone knowledge itself, but rather that to take something, rather than to wait to be gifted it, is to wrong someone. And so we might wonder with them, is there, is there something developmental about what's going on in, in humans in the garden? As they are in this kind of incubator, are they growing up and one day they will be ready and the fruit will be ripe and they'll be able to eat it and they'll be able to enter into life with God. But instead they don't wait and they take it. Is that maybe the problem that's going on here? And I, and I will say all this is just kind of wondering. It's, it's imaginations. It's not... It's not it's not like chapter and verse that explains everything because there's not a chapter and verse that explains some of this stuff. But what I believe is that God gives us good food to eat. And I believe that because Jesus says this, that he says, imagine a good father, a good earthly father. And if their child asks for a snake or for a scorpion, the good father's not going to do it. And if the child asks for something good to eat, God's not going to give them something poisonous to eat. And so in the garden, I don't think God put harmful things there, but God put boundaries there. And perhaps they were for the people's good. You can't eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil until you're ready, and it's ready. And maybe it's still ripening, and maybe you're still ripening, that you all have some growing up to do. In the same way, some of these ancient readers of Scripture would say, maybe that's also the case with the tree of life. That honestly, we just haven't heard about before. Oh, there's a tree of life here? 
Because if I was in the garden and I knew there was an eternal life tree, I'm going to skip the apples and the pears and the plums and whatever. I'm going for the eternal life tree. But we, we haven't really heard of it, and they apparently haven't eaten of it. And, and we don't know that much about it. It doesn't become like a major theme throughout the, the Old Testament. We don't see people trying to go back and to find it. We see it sometimes in history, uh, various kind of Spanish expeditions into Florida, Fountain of Life, uh, looking for the Fountain of Youth, looking for uh, maybe the Tree of Life in various places in the Middle East or wherever. But Scripture doesn't talk about it in those ways. It talks about it just here. See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the Tree of Life and eat and live forever. And if God loves us, then what I believe God is saying there is if he took, reached out his hand and took from the tree of life and ate and lived forever, it would be bad for him. It would be bad for us. And in fact, what I mean by that is if we have this reality where we have sin in our hearts and in our lives, and we have all these problems that we haven't taken care of, and then we live forever and it's just kind of locked in. You live 10,000 years, but you still are just as messed up and, and broken, and you hurt other people, and you're easily hurt, and you don't feel good about yourselves, or you feel too good about yourselves, all this sort of stuff. If that's still going on, then, then, then eternal life is not a gift, it's a curse. And the reason that... that that I think that there can be some truth to it is because we do see these stories across cultures where, where we have some mythological figure who, who somehow attains eternal life and then he finds it to be a curse because now he has to live with himself forever in the way he is, in the broken way that he is. And so is it possible that the mercy of God is not to grant us eternal life but to give us the escape of death and the end of death? Perhaps it's not what God wanted in the beginning because what we know what God wanted in the beginning was image bearers and companions and family and children. But what God wants for us is that we would be whole. Not that we would just live forever and happen not to die, but that we would live with abundant life with the fullness of the life of God, with the wholeness of the life of God. And if this life continues like that, it's not going to be fun. You don't have to get very far in life to have some things, whether it's a, you know, a, an injury in, in baseball when you're 14 years old, whether it's a, uh, arthritis, whether it's some chronic condition that you, that you were dealing with. If you live into eternity with that, that is not a gift. There are certain things that, that are relational, that, that we, we have these habits and we have these rhythms and we have these, uh, these kind of broken places and the ways we relate to each other. And we can point to how this kind of hurt this relationship over here or hurt this person over here. Or we have certain sensitivities to, to the hurt of others. And if any of these, if we were locked in with them, see, the man has become like one of us. Now he might reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And I don't want him to live forever when he is broken. I want him to be whole. The tree of life eventually is taken up in the New Testament. And all along the way in the Old Testament, we see these places at which, 
at which the people of God find themselves in exile, but God goes with them into exile. This, of course, is the first one. Another one would be when the people of Israel go down into Egypt. Another one would be when the people of Israel are, are conquered in Israel and taken to Babylon. Then all these places, God goes with people into exile again and again, this leaving and this leaving the blessing behind and this leaving what we've known behind and leaving this hurt behind. And yet God goes with us into each place until finally, until finally in Jesus Christ, God comes into our world into our life becomes the creator becomes parts of the creation in these terms the son of eve and the son of adam and the son of god are one and as jesus comes into the world not to condemn the world but to save it to show us with his life what our life can be and will be by the grace of god he too has a tree of life in his path. In fact, scripture refers to it not as a cross sometimes, but sometimes actually uses the word tree when referring to the cross. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden, I've got to believe that it looked great and you could tell and when you looked at it, it kind of, something about it would glow more than the other trees. The cross isn't like that though. The cross is this place of death and desolation and the abandonment of God. And yet somehow God, at the worst point in human history, far worse than, than this, that has often been called the fall, is the death we killed Jesus Christ. And at that point, God turned this tree of death into this new tree of life. But if we want to know eternal life, then we have to come to that tree we want to know eternal life, we have to come to the fruit of that tree, which is Jesus Christ. And when we come to him, we find that in him, because he has gone through death, and because he has defeated death, and because God has raised him up from the grave, and because he has invited us into his life, that if we follow his invitation, if we come into him, then we still can find that life is offered to us. That we can take from the tree of life or receive from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That we can live life abundantly, not as broken people, not as on the way people, but as whole people, as remade people, as new creation people. And so the early church was convinced when they looked to Jesus Christ and saw that he had been dead and he had been raised from the dead, they said, that's what God wants our future to be, that somehow on the other side of death, we will be raised up. In the scriptures, it speaks of Jesus returning. And it says that when he returns, it will be like the sun. And you have all these airport bestsellers and whatever, and maybe you've read some of them, added up the numbers, all this sort of stuff. But the scriptures say, not this is the day he will come, but you won't miss it when he comes. Because when he comes, there will be a resurrection. And in fact, the cemetery right here in town, people's feet are facing the east. It's the orientation of the cemetery. 
It's the traditional orientation of Christian cemeteries everywhere that the idea is you get on your feet facing Christ when you come up out of the grave. Now I think that's probably maybe a little too literal way of understanding what, what the resurrection will be, but what scriptures say is that we will all be raised and we will all see Christ face to face and we will all face the judgment and we who are in Christ will be made whole. We'll be made whole. And whatever it was that Adam and Eve turned away from, God didn't turn away from them. And whatever the places that we experience in life that have that same feeling of darkness and light mixed together, maybe it's your morning today, maybe it's been your past week, maybe it's the week ahead, maybe it's been the last 10 years of your life. There is hope in all of these places. If God didn't give up on us at the Garden of Eden, if God didn't give up on us at the cross, God is not giving up on you now. Not today. Not ever. And God has hope. And God has light. And God has a future for you. Yes, you in particular. Because God knows you and loves you by name. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you turned death into life. And you do it because you are God. We thank you, Lord, that we can wait and you will give us all the good gifts of your Father. And we pray that we would take that time to wait upon you, to listen day by day, to turn to your word, to spend time in prayer. And we thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you today. Would you be with us wherever we go? And will you help us tend to the light? to look to the light because we know it is Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.